It is good to be with all of you this evening. My name is Joseph Bianco, Assistant Pastor at City Reformed, and I want to welcome you again. If you're new in the name of Christ, we are glad that you are here. Uh, we have been preaching. We've started a new sermon series on First Peter, um, and we just introduced it last week. So if, again, if you're new, glad that you're with us, and you can just jump in here in First Peter. Uh, just to give you a very quick background, this is a, a book that is written to Christian exiles, meaning Christians that were suffering in exile, exiled by their own people um, around the time of the persecution of Nero. So that's going to be our context, and we're going to pick up today in verse, verses 3 to 12 of chapter 1. I'm going to read, and then our response will be, thanks be to God. So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. You can read it in your bulletin, or if you have a Bible, you can open there. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for the words here of First Peter, of Peter. Lord, how thankful we are that we can hear of the goodness of Christ, the glorious Father that were revealed to the prophets and the ages long ago, the angels who envy us because we know the risen Savior. Father, would you now enliven this word to our hearts, impress it upon us, let it be light to our eyes, let it be a path to our feet. Father, would you encourage us by it, would you strengthen us because of it? Father, would you work for your glory and your good purposes through this word? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I am um, not naturally, meaning my, my natural gifting is not being a hopeful person. If you know me, that's, uh, I'll confess that to you now. So in contrast, my wife is. Uh, she is just generally a hopeful person. When change, for example, comes knocking at my door, I think of all the horrible things that change will bring. Um, when change comes knocking at Camden's door, 
Uh, she thinks of all the wonderful things that that change could bring into her life. So there's just something more hopeful about her, uh, less pessimistic. And I've been thinking about this. Why, why are some people more hopeful than other people? And I bet if I took a show of hands, which I won't do, but if I did, I bet about half of you would fall on the pessimistic side and probably half of you on the more optimistic side. And if you're married, it would probably be your spouse, right? Um, so if you're a pessimist like me, we do this funny thing with our pessimism. We say, hey, it's not pessimism, it's realism, <laughs> right? I'm just being realistic about the situation. And the optimist would say, I'm not being unrealistic, I'm being hopeful. And I reflected on this and I began to see that optimists and pessimists really aren't that different. An optimist uses hope to protect them from fear. A pessimist will use low expectations to protect them from fear. I think that for a Christian, however, Peter offers a third way in this passage. And it's the way of hope. No doubt, but it's not a self-protective hope. It's also not a self-protective low expectation. It's a Christian optimism. It's not really based on our circumstances. It's a Christian optimism that's based on the living hope, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So look, this was a really convicting sermon for me personally, um, because I was really challenged by this kind of hope. And I, I bet that I am not alone in that. How do you handle hope if you have a significant loss? How about when your achievement fails? When you worked hard for something and then all of a sudden that thing is gone. How about if your health is fading or your child is rebelling? Is there hope then? My bet is that I am not alone in struggling to properly place my hope in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at in our text today. That that hope is not based on us. But it's based on God. I want you to remember... Uh, two words today when you're tempted to misplace your hope. God will. God will. God will bring salvation. God will give you your inheritance. God will guard your faith. God will refine your faith. And God will lead you to true joy. God will. Not you. And not me. So first, we're going to look at how God provides life and hope. That's my first point. Second, we're going to see how God keeps your life and your hope. And third, we're going to learn to rejoice even in the trials of life. So one, God provides life and hope. Two, God keeps your life and hope. And three, learning to rejoice. So first, I want you to look at how this passage begins Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next paragraph, how that begins, verse 10, concerning this salvation. This section of scripture is plain and simple about God saving you. It's what it's about. There's a lot here, but the main thrust is it is God who gives life. And we cannot bring the dead to life, but God can. 
So Peter begins with blessing and thankfulness. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he saved me. That's why. And he saved you. He gave eternal life to our souls by bringing us back from spiritual death. By giving us a new birth. And if you haven't heard this before, I don't want you to get scared at the words uh, new birth. I recognize when you hear born again, you might have had some interactions with Christians who are born again Christians that maybe were negative. Maybe you've had interactions that were positive. But regardless, I want to look at what this text says when it's saying, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I want you to forget what experiences you've had in the past and see what God's word says here. So first, it says, God saves by mercy, according to his great mercy. So the first thing Peter does to encourage Christian exiles, Christians suffering, is to remind them of the mercy of God. That they have received God's mercy. I want you to put yourself in their place. Put yourself in the place of these Christian exiles and then to be told in your suffering, you have the mercy of God. That is a balm to a suffering soul. Second, by that mercy came new life. In the suffering of the exiles, they are reminded that they have new life that cannot be touched by worldly matters. By mercy, they were born again, given hope that no man, no government, no evil can take from them. The text says they are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I've been dwelling on this concept of living hope. It's interesting wording. We often think of hope as something that is connected to uh, something that we don't presently have, that we look forward to in the future. That's often how we consider the idea of hope. But we don't actually think that that thing exists yet. Uh, here, living hope is tied together intimately with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Meaning, the hope is li- living because Jesus is living. Jesus reigns now bodily at the right hand of God the Father. His Spirit is present Now, here with us, Christian, your hope is not distant. Your hope is not far away. It is not impersonal. It's not just an idea. Your hope is not just wishful. It is not wishful thinking. Your hope is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Your hope dwells in you by His Holy Spirit. Your hope is living Your hope is active. Your hope is certain. Third, because Christ was raised, he has secured for us the outcome of our hope, which is our salvation. If you look at verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What does it mean that the inheritance which is our salvation is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? It's a really, really strong way for Peter to say, you cannot lose it. 
because God keeps it. You cannot lose it because God keeps it. I praise God that every day my salvation is in his hands. I want you to look at my hands. These are normal, average hands. Now I want you to look at the hands of God. Hands that formed the earth. Hands that set the stars in the sky. That created the universe. Those are the hands that hold my salvation. My hands are nothing compared to the hands of God. I'll put it another way. If you're given an inheritance, right? A loved one dies, you receive an inheritance. You take that inheritance and you put it in a bank for safekeeping. God is the only place in which your inheritance is safe. He's the only bank that can keep it secure for you. So all of this is Peter's way of saying to suffering Christian exiles, remember your hope. Your hope is not here, you are exiles, but your hope is secure in Jesus. Although this is directed to Christian exiles, I would be remiss at this point not to address unbelievers in the room. If you're here and you're wondering, okay, where is my faith? Uh, if you're here and in your heart you're saying, is my hope in Jesus? I'm not, I'm not sure then you're asking a good question. The beginning of this letter is not just a comfort to Christians. It's a challenge to anyone who finds their hope apart from Jesus. And let me challenge you there by asking a question. If you're an unbeliever in the room, if you're a skeptic, I want you to imagine the most devastating thing that you think could possibly happen to you. I want you to picture it in your mind. Maybe it's losing a loved one or losing your job or your health or or losing all three together. Now I want you to tell me, do you still have hope? You've lost it all. Do you still have hope? And the answer is obviously no. You do not have hope because your hope was in those things. It was in the loved one. It was in the job. It was in your health. But I want you to imagine having a deeper and a wider hope than those things. A hope that cannot be taken away. That is what it means to be born again. To be given new life. Consider what Jesus is offering you as you listen to this word. Now Christians, when I asked you the question, where is your hope? That's exactly where Peter goes in verses 5 to 8. This is my second point, how God keeps your life and your hope. There's not a Christian in this room who has not felt his hope uh, challenged by the difficulties of life. If you say you've never been challenged in life, I would challenge you. I think you're being dishonest because God will challenge all of his children. So before we get to the trials, Peter provides encouragement about this life. He, he says, verse 5, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So be, before we get to the last time, that final judgment, when all is laid bare, in this time, Peter is saying, God is guarding you through faith. God cares tremendously primarily about your salvation. 
We have our goals in life, whatever those goals may be, getting the kids to school, getting dressed in the morning. Um, If you're like me, putting one leg in the the right pant hole. Um, We have our goals in life, certainly far greater goals. And then God has his goal, and I will tell you his goal for your life. It is your salvation. But he doesn't just guard the end. He guards you now. And the tool he uses to guard you is your faith. So what does it mean that God guards us through faith? Christians often think faith is only a tool that is used whereby we receive Christ, right? And that is absolutely true. That's how we come to know Jesus as our Savior. We receive him by faith. But that same faith that he uses to save you, he uses to sustain you. Now, this is a challenge for me reading this passage because as a, a, even though I'm a pastor, uh, I will confess to you that I don't often think of myself as having great faith. But I want you to look at how Peter talks about faith in verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter talks about the faith that each one of us has as precious. He talks about it as precious. And it hit me. Do I think of my faith as precious? More precious than gold. And I have to confess, I I don't think I viewed my faith in this way. But Peter says that faith is precious. It's precious to God and it is precious to you. So precious that it may be necessary, verse 6, to be grieved by various trials that your faith may become more precious, refined, like pure gold. Now, I don't want to gloss over the hard words here. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. All Christians will be brought through trials. And the only reason the Lord is bringing you through it is because it is necessary. What is your trial now? What is your trial right now? Is it looking for a job? Is it a broken relationship? Maybe an estranged father or a mother or a sister or a brother? Is it a lack of finances? Is it loneliness? Is it mental illness? Is it a physical ailment? What is your trial? I think uh, one we often forget to talk about in the church, and if if you'll grant me, I think this is a good opportunity, is the trial of infertility, of uh, the inability to conceive as a, a family in the church. We have people in our church who have struggled to conceive, and the words have been grieved in this passage are appropriate. It is a real and it's a significant loss for those families. To dream for years of having children running through your house, to hear their laughter, and then to be told that that will not be possible for you is a grief. And it's important that as the body of Christ, when a family grieves, when a couple grieves, when an individual grieves, that we grieve with them. That we grieve together. That if you have children, 
if you have conceived, to put yourself in their shoes, to show empathy, to show compassion, to be present with them. Now, I use infertility as an example, but again, let me ask the question, what is that thing for you? Now, I'm going to ask you another harder question. Whatever that thing is for you, the thing that you are grieving, do you grieve as one without hope? Do you grieve as one without hope? And I want to offer you two comforts here. First is what we already said, that God is guarding you now. He's guarding you now. And he does not bring you through that trial alone. He is present with you, a living hope that no thing, person, power can take from you. Second, God is working in the grief to guard you by increasing, purifying, strengthening, and refining your faith. We often think about faith, the refining of faith is merely a painful incident, but Actually, the picture here is not pain, but it's one of beauty. As the dross melts away, the luster of the gold shines through. So I'm certain you can look back on a trial and see how God has brought you to a place of greater faith. As he did for the Christian exiles who say, verse 8, Though I don't see him, I love him. And the text says that they rejoice even in that exile, with a joy that is inexpressible, unexpressible, filled with glory. This brings me to my third point. I believe this is the hardest point. Learning to rejoice, even in the trials. So I don't know about you, but for me, when trials come, my hope, all of a sudden, my living hope in Christ can feel unstable, shaken. And I think... Some people are more hopeful than others, but the more I I dwell on Scripture, the more I am convicted that that Christians really ought to be optimists. Not in the sense that I mentioned before, whether you're a pessimist or optimist, but a Christian optimist. One who has the hope because, let me tell you why, verse 6. In this you rejoice. In this means everything Peter said about your salvation and everything he will say about your trials. Or how about what Paul says in Romans 3, 5, or chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Also in your additional scriptures. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And that hope does not put us to shame. Lastly, verse 8. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. If that is not optimistic thinking, I don't know what it is. And it is a challenge to me. To have hope in the midst of trial, to rejoice when everything around you feels like it's going the wrong way. Who does that? And the answer is Christians do that. We have a joy that is wider and deeper and stronger than any trial that we will face. Now let me ask the hard question. Do you have this joy? Do you have this joy? Would you describe your joy as a Christian as inexpressible and filled with glory? 
We've been going through a bit of a trial in our home right now. Um, we uh, bought a house closer to this church building and then need to now sell our house. Uh, and the clock is ticking and I have found myself anxious <laughs> to get our house sold. Uh, my mind keeps going back to, to make sure I, I've done everything I can to, to present this house well so that it will sell. And the reality is, is I have very little control uh, whether my house will sell or not. Um, the reality is that I can't make someone like the color of the walls in my living room. I can't make the trickle of water that comes into my Pittsburgh basement go away when we have torrential rains. I can't make them like the half the yard I ripped out to put a garden in. <laughs> um, I can't change how they feel. And I, I try to control it with my anxiety. And my anxiety rises because I have forgotten my joy. I've forgotten that my God has bigger plans for me than buying or selling a house in my time. That God is after my heart. He's in the process of purifying my faith. And when I can step back a minute and remember, right, I'm called to be joyful in trials, to be thankful for a precious faith that God is cultivating in me, to remember my inheritance, to remember that God has saved me by his mercy, to remember that even now God guards me. When I can reflect and dwell and pray on these things, the peace of Christ creeps back into my life. Christians, when you're in trials and when you're grieving, when you're suffering, even as the early Christian exiles suffer, when you're concerned about our government or your family members or your friends or your health or your wealth or your dreams, do not forget your joy. Do not forget your joy. Do not forget that you were saved. You were given new life, given an inheritance, given a faith more precious than gold that God will hold and keep. Peter tells us that the things we have now are the things that the prophets and the angels long to see. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, things into which the angels long to look. So did your dad ever tell you when he was about to drive you to school when you were a child, he would say, uh, you get to be driven to school. I had to walk uphill both ways in the snow, right? In a very real, real way, Peter is saying, that we are on the side of knowing the Savior. And the prophets long ago didn't have the opportunity that we have now. Knowing Jesus, knowing his mercy, his holiness, receiving salvation, having an inexpressible joy is something that the text says the prophets and the angels longed after, that we have the prophets waited to see Jesus and we get to live every day knowing him as our savior. Even says the text, the angels envy you because in a real way you are not walking uphill both ways in the snow. You're being driven. You have the spirit of Christ 
guiding and driving your life. The Spirit who comforts you, who is with you in the midst of a trial. So let me leave you with these three things. I'm just recapping my points. One, stop your hopelessness. I say that as much to myself as I say it to you. Stop your hopelessness and take hold of all the joy that is yours in Jesus. Two, replace the hopelessness with living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And three, learn to be joyful even in the midst of trials. God is making your faith precious to you. And he's making it more precious than anything else. Let's pray.